Charles Dickens expressed the spirit of Christmas so powerfully that his writings impacted both English and American culture. Our guest today is a great scholar and homeschooling dad, Dr. Anthony Esselin, here to guide us into the mystery and beauty of a Dickensian Christmas. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hello, I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host, and today I have the great pleasure of talking with Dr. Anthony Esselin about the mystery and beauty of a Dickensian Christmas. This is going to be so much fun. Dr. Anthony Esselin is a professor and writer-in-residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts in Warner, New Hampshire. He's the author of 25 books and over 600 articles in both scholarly and general interest journals, such as Touchstone, where he's a senior editor. Crisis, First Things, Public Discourse, and many, many others. Dr. Esselin is also a popular speaker at colleges and church and civic institutions in the U.S. and Canada. An accomplished poet, Dr. Esselin is the author of the widely acclaimed three-volume verse translation of Dante's Divine Comedy, which is fast becoming the standard edition for students of Dante. Take note, and we do have a link in the show notes to Dr. Esselin's books. His book-length sacred poem, which you're going to hear a little bit of today, The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, is a unified collection of lyric poems, dramatic monologues, and hymns, and includes a 40-page introductory essay on traditional poetry, what it is, and how to read it. Dr. Esselin and his wife homeschooled their children from kindergarten through high school and headed their state's homeschooling organization for many years. His book, 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child, was inspired by his own experiences as a homeschooling dad and has been called, quote, a worthy successor to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Its sequel, Life Under Compulsion, with the same subtitle, 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child, has been called, quote, essential reading for parents, educators, and anyone who is concerned to rescue children from the tedious and vacuous thing childhood has become. I love those strong words. You can find Dr. Esselin on Facebook and Amazon.com. We'll have links for you. Dr. Esselin, thank you for being with us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's just so good. Uh, it's hard to make time, and you really, you got here. I got here. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Thanks be to God. All right, so we're talking about Charles Dickens today and, and this beautiful season of Advent and Christmas. Tell us a little bit about Dickens's Christianity. I'd like to start off by saying that you will hear sometimes people say that Charles Dickens for Americans and Englishmen, invented Christmas, uh, <laughs> invented it through his Christmas stories, especially a Christmas carol. Well, that is complete nonsense, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, our Christmas carols, traditional English Christmas carols go back seven, 800 years. Um, and uh, we had wonderful celebrations of Christmas in all of the countries of Western Europe and Eastern Europe. What uh, such people don't seem to see, though, is that um, for, 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 for Dickens, Christmas wasn't just a merry old holiday for, you know, getting together with your friends and your family and eating plum pudding. Um, Charles Dickens 
never took two steps in his writing without thinking about the Gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it, they're everywhere. It, it's not that they're everywhere as so always as, uh, you know, the single thing that he's talking to you directly about. They're the air that he breathes. They're the water that he drinks, food that he eats. Okay. And then sometimes he does refer to them directly and point. Dickens, uh, I don't think Dickens had a, a theological mind. So if you asked him a question about the nature of the church, he would have shrugged and gotten impatient. He was rather a low church sort of fellow that way. Uh, if you asked him a question about the Trinity, he would also have gotten impatient. Um, but if you asked him a question about our Savior, and that Dickens called Jesus our Savior, okay, he would have gotten uh, he would have gotten very serious. Um, it's our Savior in the words of our Lord uh, that he thinks about all the time. Maybe the single most important thing for him in his writing that Jesus ever said is quoted directly in a Christmas carol. And that's where Peter Cratchit, the elder of the two Cratchit boys, is uh, in a vision that Scrooge is granted by the ghost of Christmas yet to come, of the Cratchit family, okay, at home. This is what would be the case if things don't change. Tiny Tim will die. Peter Cratchit is reading from the Gospels. And he reads these words, and he took a little child and set him in their midst. And uh, Dickens, of course, writing for Englishmen of the time and Americans, hugely popular in America. He didn't have to say, hey, you know what? I mean, if he was writing for the New York Times right now, he'd have to say, by the way, this comes from the Gospels. And this is the situation, okay? And by the way, the Gospels are the four books of the evangelists in the New Testament. He wouldn't have to do any of that. People would understand the situation, that the disciples of Jesus were bickering about who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. And that's when Jesus took a little child and set him in their midst and embraced him and said, uh, whoever would be greatest in the kingdom of God must be least. I tell you, except you enter the kingdom of God as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of God, right? And Jesus says that several times in the Gospels, right? You must become like one of these, like one of these little ones. And in the context of the book, Christmas Carol, that's maybe the most powerful, dramatic moment of all. Because Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, if he's going really to live, um, if his soul is going to come back to life again, he has to be reborn. He has to become as a little child. Um, but that's, that kind of thing happens constantly through the novels of Charles Dickens. There was not before Dickens, and there has not been since Dickens, a novelist in English that focused so intently upon the child, um, the, the great worth of the innocence of children. He didn't sentimentalize children. There are a lot of bad children in his novels, okay? 
but cruelty to a child never goes unpunished in the novels of Dickens. Also in the plays of Shakespeare, by the way, that's just an aside. For Shakespeare, too, the innocence of the child was inviolable. If you violate the innocence of a child, if you behave cruelly to a child, you can expect disaster in Shakespeare. Yeah, I love that. I love that their Christianity comes through so powerfully. And I, when you said he has to become a little child for his soul to come back to life, and you think of the end when he's just so full of joy and so free and uninhibited and just can't stop laughing. Well, that's right. <laughs> Dickens wants us to be quite aware of it, too. Okay. When Scrooge wakes up, right, on, on Christmas morning, he, 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 he's not even sure what day it is, all right? I don't know what day of the month it is, said Scrooge. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind, I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. And then he calls out to the kid, the boy that's down below in the street, and he says, what day is it today? Well, today, it's Christmas day. <laughs> I am quite a baby. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. That's that's not accidental. And I think Dickens could depend upon his audience, his readers immediately saying, yes, he's become a little child. Yeah. And he had to go to the darkest possible places to get there. Uh, I remember, I think it's Marley, and I can't quote it exactly, but he shouts in frustration at Scrooge that humanity was my business. I mean, it's a, very, right. it's a very adult thing to say, but Scrooge can't get there except through his own childhood and then finally being reborn. Right, and it's not, um, uh, it's not something that we would now understand, okay? These days, we Americans are taken up with ambition. I like to remind my students sometimes that poet Dante did not distinguish between ambition in the world, that is, wanting to be in a higher place, like wanting power. He didn't distinguish between that and avarice. That is just another form of greed, okay? So uh, let's see if I can find that, that passage very quickly here where uh, Scrooge says you were a good man of business, right? And he says it in a faltering way. Business, cried the ghost, wringing his hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Isn't that great? Oof. I'm getting shivers and my nose is turning red. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not sentimental. You know, the funny thing about Dickens is that he was politically rather conservative. He did not necessarily believe that uh, the crown, the government, should or even was capable of doing all of the good things that the poor needed, right? It was absolutely necessary that individual human beings, families, local churches, right, that they, that they see other human beings where they are and, and welcome them into their midst, 
that they touch their lives with their own lives. The converse of this in uh, the book Leak House is what he subjects to satire. He calls it telescopic philanthropy, hmm. where you pretend to be doing real good <laughs> for people on the other side of the globe, all right, while you neglect your own household. In his mind, that that um, at the best, it's it's sentimental. At the worst, in fact, it's it's really another form of evil. It's another form of greed. Neglecting your business, which is charity, mercy, forbearance, and so forth. You can be neglecting that while signing up all kinds of people for money to give to the poor at a distance. Telescopic mm -hmm. philanthropy. Okay. And, and that's, it's a little bit like what Scrooge himself says, defending himself against the, the people who come to his office, his counting house. In the first chapter of the book, they say, you know, at this time of year, a lot of people are going without food, without shelter. Would you like to contribute? And Scrooge passes that off on, on government. He says, I pay taxes. Okay. Are there no poor houses? Are there no workhouses? I support them with my taxes. And that's it. When they're asking for a personal uh, commitment. Okay. For Scrooge, it's all abstract and distant. If, if, it's, not, if it's not personal, if it's not human being to human being, Dickens doesn't, Dickens is not really that interested in it. And he suggests to us many times it's not going to be of any effect. Yeah. So the sense that it's very personal and to be, to, to live with the kind of purity and openness of a child, to not be caught up in the, the ambitions of the world and all of that. What do you draw from that for yourself, Dr. Asselin, approaching the Christ child in Advent and all of that? Well, you know, I, um, I remember the first time I saw it at my old church in Rhode Island. Uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful pastor. And um, he, uh, he, was a, he didn't need a liturgical committee. He was his own liturgical committee. <laughs> and he didn't need a music committee. He was his own music committee. Okay. And I remember uh, the first time I saw him do this, it was uh, Midnight Mass at Christmas. He proceeded from the vestry down the aisle, and then it would be up, up the center aisle. He proceeded as you would proceed at benediction of the Blessed Sacrament with the monstrance held lovingly beneath the folds of your cloak. But... It wasn't the monstrance held like that. It was the Christ child held like this to show before the people, okay? Um, the bread of life, the manna come down from heaven, okay? Christ himself, uh, a little statue of the Christ child, baby boy. And it, it hits you so powerfully then. Um, that uh, the maker of all of this great universe became that little baby boy for us 
the one who could not even speak, the word of God became an infant. One without speech is what it means, literally, to save us. Whatever he believed about the Trinity or whatever, Charles Dickens never, uh, never got over the sheer wonder and the power of that fact. That the, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. And he dwelt among us first as that infant, a little child. And that's why the Savior in, in this book, The Christmas Carol, the Savior is Tiny Tim. He's Tiny Timothy. He's the, he's the boy uh, in, in scripture, we find out that he learned the faith from his mother and his grandmother. So he learned it as a little boy from Lois and Eunice. St. Paul says so. So St. Paul refers to Timothy. Um, I mean, he, know, he, he, he suggests to us that, you know, maybe churches, the church might give Timothy a hard time because he's young. So right. Timothy is like a young fellow, okay? <laughs> but we see in Paul's mind an image of Timothy learning the faith from directly from the mouths of his grandma and his and his mama, okay? Well, tiny Tim, and the adjective tiny is important. It's not big Tim. It's tiny Tim. He's the savior in in the book, and perhaps people will know. The first of the things that we hear that Tiny Tim has said in this book, they might remember. Bob, Bob Cratchit comes home from church. He's been to church on Christmas Eve, okay? And Mrs. Cratchit asks him, how did Tim, how did little Tim behave? And Bob says, as good as gold and better Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this and trembled more when he said that tidy, Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. Well, it trembled more because Bob is trying to make himself believe what isn't so. Uh, in fact, Tiny is, Tim is not growing stronger and, and hearty. But there's, those are the first words of Tiny Tim. They were reported to us by Bob Cratchit. And Tiny Tim is himself lame, right? And they're very poor, so he's the lame beggar. And who's the blind man? Scrooge. Scrooge is the blind man. Wow. So Jesus is going to make Scrooge see. And Scrooge has been blind. All right. And he's going to do this in large part through the uh, preaching of Tiny Tim, although Tiny Tim doesn't preach. Right. By his example, by his person and his holy innocence. 
this lame beggar will be instrumental in uh, the curing of the blindness of that old, hard-hearted old man, that, that, that man who doesn't see. Wow. I'm just having so many thoughts, Dr. Esselin, as you're talking about the, what's going on in our homes. And we think about giving gifts and what's the right gift for this one or that one. And it just occurs to me that, you know, and we think about these things ordinarily, but in a particular way in the season of such extraordinary graces, what are the ways that we can provide for the people we love? What, what can we give them that really matters? Yeah, it's tough in our time because, I mean, even in my own lifetime, I've seen, I've seen a change. And it was already long on the path towards the sort of place where we are now when I was a child. But when I was a child, at least, there, was still, there were still the vestiges of um, uh, what used to be a very vibrant community life. Um, they were these vestiges. There were children every place, and the children were outside. Okay? And churches were still full when I was a boy, when I was a little boy. Yet neighbors were starting to draw apart from each other. People built new houses. They moved away. They didn't see each other all the time. And then people stopped having children, um, only a couple maybe. And then you seldom saw the children outdoors anymore. So that now people live, live very solitary lives. And whether they know it or not, they may not think of themselves as greedy, and perhaps they are not greedy, but they're largely leading the life that Scrooge leads. It's the life of isolation, and it's not a human life. We're not meant for that. We're meant to live in big, boisterous families and big, boisterous neighborhoods and, and all that. Right? I mean, that's shown in A Christmas Carol, too. It's not just the Cratchit family in a lot of productions uh, uh, of A Christmas Carol. The directors or the cartoonists will cut out the part of the plot that has to do with Scrooge's nephew, Fred. I love Fred. Yeah. Uh, and Fred goes to Scrooge to invite him to Christmas dinner at his house. Right? Fred is newly married. Fred doesn't have much money at all. But he's a good man. Uh, he's married for love, and he wants to invite Scrooge, you know, to to dinner, and not just with him and his wife, but he's going to have a whole lot of guests. So come on along, Uncle Ebenezer. <laughs> and Sc Scrooge basically tells him to go, you know, go. <laughs> he thinks he wants his money. You know, he doesn't understand. Yeah, no, he doesn't gesture. understand at all. He doesn't understand. But in the, when he's with the ghost of the Christmas present, it's Fred's house that he visits along with the Cratchit's house. And at Fred's house, Scrooge starts to get into some of the fun that's going on. <laughs> They're playing blind man's buff. And it's clear that one of Scrooge, one of Fred's guests a young fellow named Topper is in love with one of the girls there. Okay. <laughs> so that, that's going on there too. And Scrooge gets into the 
party, even though the joke is on him once. <laughs> He's being made social. And we notice that it's to he does on Christmas Day, after he has become a little child again, he does two things. He goes two places. First, he goes to services. He goes to church. And he's probably not done that. I bet you he didn't even go to church for the funeral of Jacob Marley. But he goes to church. And the second thing he does, with his hat in his hand and asking permission, he goes to Fred's house. And he says, will you have me, Fred? He doesn't say, hey, I'm here. I decided after all. No, he says, will you still have me? And he gets invited and he spends the day at Fred's house. It's the next day when uh, we, we see him with Bob Cratchit. And uh, he, he, he gives Cratchit the day off and they're going to get together and see what practically can be done to help Bob and his struggling family. And right at this that he sent the Christmas turkey to their house, unbeknownst to them, that it came from him. So that there's, and then he becomes, he becomes a second father to Tiny Tim. That's what it said. And he kept Christmas in his heart. It's just astonishing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Dickens is careful to point out subtly, mostly subtly, all the implications of this. To be born again means that you're a human being among other human beings. To be a human being again is that you go to Fred's house. <laughs> <laughs> you go to church and then you go to Fred's house for a party. <laughs> and they play games like children. I mean, yeah, there's no like pretense. They're just having fun. Bob Cratchit, in one of the Scrooge movies, in one of the... Christmas Carol movies, the one with Alistair Sim as Scrooge, uh, Gene Lockhart, rather a pudgy Bob Cratchit, but other than that, <laughs> he's very good. He goes out of, of the, the counting house and gets into a merry snowball fight with the boys. And unfortunately, one of the snowballs hits Scrooge and Scrooge fires Bob Cratchit there. I mean, that's not in the book, but... But it's appropriate in a way, right? Uh, uh, it's uh, it, this 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 man, Bob Cratchit, is a boy at heart, and Scrooge becomes a boy again, a baby. I am quite a baby. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. I don't want to run out of time without asking you. Would you share a little bit of Hundredfold something? To, to bless us in this beautiful season. Well, something that's fit for the conversation. Uh, see, the, the poem made up of a hundred poems is structured around the life of Christ. And so this is rather early in it. And this is one of the hymns. The melody is a melody called Dies Estetitiae. There are four stanzas to it. And, well, I guess I won't need to explain what it's all about. From the temple of her womb comes the son of Mary, 
light in the surrounding gloom, priest and king of glory. He commands the hosts of heaven, but tonight to man is given mildest of the mild. Court and temple now a stable. Who is he to smite the rebel? He a little child. As a child he enters first, as a child would save us. Through the walls of glory burst, and as children have us. Who among all men on earth first bear witness to his birth? Smallest of the small. Shepherds watching in the field kneel in awe, and glory yield to the God of all. He who builds the sparrow's nest, he who feeds the raven, takes his milk from Mary's breast in the manger haven. We are hungry too and lost. Who will feed us without cost, weakest of the weak? From his lips in time to be, we shall hear that only he is the bread we seek. And the last stanza. Let the sons of morning sing, every man and nation, gaze upon the child and bring praise for your salvation. Mary, lead our praises now, maiden lowliest of the low, brightest of the bright. To the Father ever true, take us as thy children too, swaddled up in light. That's gorgeous. Wow. I think that could be sung. This is, I, I know I was, I was kind of hoping you were going to sing it. I don't know how to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Go. <laughs> oh my gosh. This has been such a joy. And thank you so much because I know it's been a long day. You just brought such beauty and light into this conversation through so many ways, through the, the Dickens literature, through our understanding of our faith and, and that focus on that little child and the innocence. Any final thoughts before we wish everybody yeah, a happy I have a final Christmas? thought, all <laughs> you parents out there. Okay? <laughs> I mean this. Uh, I'm in dead earnest about this. It's up to you to form the imaginations of your children. If they are going to school, they will be malformed. Um, it's poison there. To form the imaginations of your children, you really do have to use the works of the imagination, literature, music, and art. Have to use them. Don't depend upon CCD classes or good theology classes or philosophy classes. They form a different part of your children's beings, but not the imagination. And the imagination is the driver. Satan will gladly concede really good theology classes. If he has hold of the imagination, he's in the driver's seat. So by all means, make use of our great heritage, almost 2,000 years, well, 2,000 years heritage of Christian art and music and literature. It's there. Pick it up. Read it. Yeah. Like the like, I, I hate to use a war image, but almost like holy weapons. Let's let's arm oh, our children. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, it's dynamite. Okay, why are you picking at that mountain with a shovel and a pickaxe when you've got dynamite? Use the dynamite. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Eslin, and everybody. I've got links to Dr. Eslin's books. Look for the um, Life Under Compulsion. 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child. Just a great way 
to get yourself in the driver's seat with forming your children. And if you're new to homeschooling, just check out his books and also the the beautiful full-length book poem that that he read from today. Uh, that's all there in the show notes. And 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 uh, I guess we've got you on Amazon and we've got you on Facebook, Dr. Esselin. Anywhere else they can find you that you'd like to, besides the many magazines you write for online and so many other places. Well, if it was a normal life we had these days in the summer, you could find me on a baseball field someplace. But uh, uh, <laughs> I guess it would be Amazon and Facebook. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll have to do with that until we are all in heaven together, won't we, for now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. It's been a delight. I hope you've been as blessed as I have been in this conversation. And please stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Blessed Advent, everyone. This is Chantal from Ideal to Real, making lofty and holy pipe dreams more accessible and attainable for Catholic families and their homeschools. My friends, there is no sugarcoating it. I'm so sorry. There is much in our world today to trouble our spirits, and surely the news, anxiety, and uncertainty has trickled into our homeschooling. Perhaps you feel at this point that much of what you set out to do this year has been derailed, or at least the wind has been knocked out of your sails, and stagnation is just a dreadful place to try and inspire our children from. So now what? We give up. Yep, you heard me. We give up all that we have, all that we do, and the desire of our hearts to the Lord. Of course, I don't mean we quit, but rather we've come to the glorious moment, the one the Lord so often brings his faithful to, the moment when we sigh from the depths of our being, your strength is made perfect in my weakness. I give it up to you, O Lord. Some of you may be familiar with the term unschooling. The concept, roughly put, is that in not forcing curricula or stipulated timelines and benchmarks, children often emerge more eager to learn and their interests and strengths become more clearly defined. And they often take the lead in pursuing learning. I like to call this approach sunschooling. Haha, <laughs> S-O-N. I step back and the Lord mysteriously takes over. I'm always amazed at how efficient and productive and refreshing he is as the teacher <laughs> and how much pressure he takes off my shoulders. So in my humble opinion, after nearly 20 years of personal homeschool experience and my own very real struggles in the current times of tribulation, Regardless of your approach, curriculum, grade level, or desired outcome, I believe that it's really paramount to the success of your homeschool that you set aside and even plan for windows of sunschooling. As a keen example of this principle, I've been not only overwhelmed by national drama, but I'm in my busiest business season to boot. My kindergartner schooling has taken a backseat to my personal attention as of late, and I've even <laughs> been employing my 7th and 10th grader in helping me to make rosaries and market and run social media campaigns and so forth. 
While we've pulled back in traditional schooling through the last two to three weeks, I've been amazed by two things. One, their ability to still stay on point with some essential classwork, even with less focus time. And two, the amazing learning that is taking place outside of our curriculum. For instance, my five-year-old, who is just now learning letter formation and phonograms, came to me a few days ago and said, I need to do some schoolwork, Mom. So I'm going to make a spelling list. And I kind of chuckled and thought, okay, good, go to work, I'm busy. (laughs) All on her own, without one ounce of help, she found 10 words, drew lines on a piece of paper and wrote them all out with precision and accuracy that was far beyond our curriculum progress. I hadn't even completed teaching her how to write the whole alphabet yet. And here she was perfectly forming letters and words that throughout the week she managed to reference and spell and rewrite all on her own. Sunschooling showed me she was ready and willing for more than I was letting her learn before. Likewise, my kids' appetite to create and their stamina for real work shows me that they too have a capacity that is bigger than what I thought they had. As I prepped today's episode, I asked a dear friend of mine, Stefania West, what she, as a young mother of homeschooling children, would want to hear amidst this time of stressful turbulence. And she said she thought it would be helpful to hear that it's okay to take her foot off the gas, to have permission to embrace a break when needed so that refreshment, crafting, charity chores, sunschooling, and other needed healing could take place. My friends, so much of this world is out of our control. Our prayers are powerful and our love is contagious. Trust your heart and give it up to God. Embrace the need for a season of rest or work or creativity as it may be. In giving it up to God, you're not really giving up. For He is the master teacher and He will speed your family's progress even when it seems like you've given up. Hope on, my friends. He's got this. We are in His hands and there is nothing outside of his control. I'm Chantal Howard. You can find me at chantal-howard.com and aromarosary.com. I hope that you'll come visit these two websites and consider giving the gift of an aroma rosary, personal coaching, or essential oils to those that you love. That's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com, where you can get online courses for your grade school, middle school, and high school student. Learn from the experts and make your homeschooling easier. Be sure to leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time here on the Homeschooling Saints podcast.